This episode of Rule Breaker Investing is sponsored by Bombfell, an online personal styling service for men that helps find the right clothes for you. Get $25 off your first purchase at bombfell.com slash fool. That's B-O-M-B Fell, bombfell.com slash fool. And by Audible for a free audio book with a 30-day free trial. Go to audible.com slash fool. Thanks to Audible for supporting The Motley Fool. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. I'm David Gardner. Happy October. I trust it will be for all of us. October, always an enchanting month. It ends with Halloween, which is certainly one of America's cherished holidays. But in the meantime, um, the leaves begin to turn. Our area, Washington, D.C., becomes truly beautiful. I know many other places across America in the Western Hemisphere, somewhere around this line of latitude, do as well. And uh, so I always enjoy October. I'm going to enjoy this October of podcasts. We've got some great ones for you. And one of them is today's. This is an interview I've done with Anders Ericsson, who is one of the co authors of the book Peak, P E A K, a book about human potential a book about excellence and expertise. It puts me in mind of one of my very favorite poems. In fact, it's such a favorite poem that I've memorized it, and I'm going to attempt to do it without looking at anything right now for you. It's Stephen Spender's, I think, continually of those who are truly great, because I really do think that Dr. Erickson is helping us understand greatness a little bit better. So, here we go. I think continually of those who are truly great, who from the womb Remembered the soul's history through corridors of light, where the hours are suns, endless, and singing, whose lovely ambition was that their lips, still touched with fire, should tell of the spirit clothed from head to foot in song, and who hoarded from the spring branches desires falling across their bodies like blossoms. What is precious is never to forget the delight of the blood drawn from ancient springs breaking through rocks and worlds before our earth, never to deny its pleasure in the simple morning light, nor its grave evening demand for love, never to allow gradually the traffic to smother with noise and fog the flowering of the spirit. Near the snow, near the sun, in the highest fields, see how these names are fetid by the waving grass and by the streamers of white cloud and the whispering winds and the listening skies, the names of those who in their lives fought for life who wore at their hearts the fire's center. Born of the sun, they traveled a short while toward the sun and left the vivid air signed with their honor." It's a beautiful poem. And while I can't claim that my interview with Dr. Erickson, which I've already done, so I know it already, is quite that good, I think that this is one of the better interviews I hope that you'll hear in the year 2017. I just think Dr. Erickson and his work is outstanding. I hope you'll enjoy this. Dr. Anders Ericsson is the world's reigning expert on expertise. He is a Conradi eminent scholar and professor of psychology at Florida State University. He studies expert performance in domains such as music, chess, medicine, and sports. His groundbreaking work has been widely cited in major newspapers, magazines, and such bestsellers as Moonwalking with Einstein, Outliers, and How Children Succeed. His research was the inspiration for the popular 10,000-hour rule that I'm sure many of us have heard of, the idea that you should practice something for 10,000 hours and that therein lies mastery, although that's not all there is to it, as we'll shortly find out. He's worked with major international organizations, medical schools, military groups, and professional sports teams. 
He lives in Florida. And I want to make a special note of making sure we mention Robert Poole, his co-author. We don't have uh, Robert Poole with us today. We do have Anders Ericsson, but I know it was an excellent collaboration between you both. Uh, welcome, Anders. It's a pleasure to talk to you. So I want to begin as your book begins, and that's with you telling the Steve Falloon story. Would you do that? That's really how we kind of got started. Uh, I was interested in, you know, if one could actually understand how people improve uh, a memory capacity. At the time when I actually moved from Sweden to the United States, uh, there was basically a lot of interest in this kind of invariant short-term memory capacity Mm -hmm. that people differed in. And the test that was used was, you know, reading random numbers and then having people repeat them back. And the question is, how many of those numbers can actually give an individual reliably report back once you hear them at one per second? And, and so we were interested in, you know, whether that really was something that would constrain people's thinking ability and skill acquisition. So we were kind of wanting to kind of test that by giving somebody a lot of practice on that task. And, and I think that's really where my interest in what's really possible with practice was, was really sort of becoming apparent. So after about 200 hours of testing and experiments, he increased his ability to reproduce initially seven digits to over 80 digits. And, and I think what was the most interesting was the kind of changes in his thought processes that were associated with this dramatic improvement of his performance. And it is remarkable. So, you are sitting there for hours and hours, and you are one per second saying something like this, seven, six. Could you just do it briefly, just so we can all be Steve Falloon for a sec? Okay. So, four, seven, one, oh, two, three, zero, Four, All right, I probably three, won't be able six, to do much better from that point, but four seven one oh two three something like that. I'm sure. I know a lot of Rule Breaker Investing listeners were right there with me, and thank you. So you just gave us a special experience. You gave us what you were doing uh, that famously starts your book with Steve Falloon. and so he went from knowing seven or eight or so, which is what our short-term memory capacity typically can do, to over eighty. Yeah, and and I think. The most interesting part was that it was a qualitative shift that allowed him to actually increase his memory. So, what most people do is that they listen to the numbers, and then when they get to the end, you know, you kind of go back to the beginning and then try to basically just read them off from your short-term memory. Mm-hmm. What he ended up finding was a way to expand on this was to actually concentrate on the first three digits. And thinking of them as running times, he was a runner, so he could actually think of it as, uh, you know, four minutes and twenty-six seconds, mm. which would be a sort of a mile time, and and that would <clears throat> now make contact with his long-term memory. And over time, he just he started out doing one of those groups before he rehearsed, and then he added on groups, and eventually he developed a scheme. A hierarchical scheme of, of basically a lot of these different groups that eventually led him to be able to do uh, over 80 digits. 
And so, it turns out, and this is a key point early on in your book, Peak, which is what we're talking about on Rule Breaker Investing this week, it turns out that, that our brains change. They, they grow. They, parts of them can shrink, just like our muscles, even though that wasn't always how science understood the brain. In fact, how recently have we discovered that, Dr. Erickson? Well, I think it was this belief that the brain, you know, was growing until you were about 18. And by the time you were 18, you know, basically your fundamental basic mental capacities were pretty much determined. But that's what we're now finding is that the brain, you know, can be changed throughout the entire lifespan. And, and that uh, if we look at some types of skills, and I think the one with the digispan is interesting because when Steve started, I guess he was uh, you know, a little uh, close to 20 years old. Mm-hmm. So he supposedly had already you know, his fixed capacities. <laughs> and, and, and basically at that age, he was able to make this uh, dramatic improvement. And we actually have tested and replicated this and other researchers have shown that this is not something that was just unique for him. This is something that you can see uh, a large number of people, if they're willing to commit to this pretty exacting training. People's abilities are more determined here by what they're willing to do here in terms of training, especially training when you're instructed by a teacher. Mm. And we're definitely going to get more into practice and how and whether practice makes perfect and we're going to talk about that in a little bit because that's the real meat of your book Dr. Erickson but but before we go there I wanted to talk briefly and hear from you just about the amazing gains not just by Steve Falloon in the one experiment that you conducted over the course of a few years but all of our fellow humans um, Memorizing digits of pi, for example, this is another. Elsewhere in your book, you talk about. Um, I guess it was David Richard Spencer of Canada, and he had the world record in 1973. He had memorized 511 digits after pi, and then you said by 1978, as people start getting competitive, five years later, the record had been increased from 511 to, wait for it, 10,000 digits of pi, though. I did want to ask you before finishing this question: Was it actually ten thousand? Because I'm of the school that you know round numbers are usually lies. <laughs> well, you know, I think uh, these records had to be basically uh, demonstrated to a jury. Uh, basically, that was appointed by the Guinness Book uh, ah. uh, configuration. So, so at that point, you had to prepare basically a certain number of digits, and ah, given the sense. choice here, you know, you could basically do. 10,000, that would seem you know, like a good, nice, round number, uh, especially if that would be the record. It sure is. And it was the record, but not for that much longer, I gather. Subsequently to 1978 and that 10,000, now we're here in 2017. At least as of 2015, as your book documents, Rajveer Mina had pushed the record out from 10,000 digits of Pi memorized to 70,000 digits. You said it took him nine hours and seven minutes just to recite his memorized digits 
of pi. And this is just another example, and we can talk about examples throughout all kinds of human endeavors, from sports to music, games. There's something bigger happening here when we talk about just the incredible acceleration of expert performance that we've seen in just the last 30 years or so. What is going on? I think uh, one issue is that you're actually being recognized. If nobody cared, uh, then putting in that amount of time into a skill that you want to demonstrate. And uh, we work with uh, basically students from India, and, and apparently in India, Guinness Book records were really recognized as something that was sort of up there with Nobel Prizes and stuff like that. Uh-huh. And so, so obviously, you need to have kind of a, a goal if you want to invest the amount of time that it would take for somebody to be able to memorize, you know, fifty or seventy thousand digits. Uh, so that would typically take several years, <laughs> <clears throat> where you actually, you know, have to start with the beginning and then you keep adding on, you know, more and more digits until you can basically recite uh, the whole long series. I'm curious, have you looked at spelling bees at all? Spelling bees seem to have reached more popular currency here in the United States. As you know, uh, the championship will be on ESPN or maybe ESPN2 each year with kids. Do kids spell much better this year than they did 30 years ago? Well, you know, if you look at the competitors, uh, and again, I think that that's kind of the interesting finding that once there is sort of some rewards associated with achieving something, you will now motivate parents and children to kind of engage in training that would actually increase the probability that, you know, they would perform really well on these different kinds of events. Mm. It's rare that you would find somebody sitting by themselves memorizing these digits without telling anyone. Now, (laughs) obviously, if they didn't tell anyone, we wouldn't know about it, but these skills are very clearly motivated by the kind of recognition that individuals get from uh, their performance that they can demonstrate. Hmm. And probably a kind of a digressive point, which I won't belabor, but maybe the um, advent of the internet and more globalization, more global awareness and communication that somebody is really great at something and everybody around the world's competing, maybe this is all accelerating things. I think that's a really interesting point. And and I guess when it comes to memory, they have these international now memory competitions that some people refer to as, as the mental Olympics, where you have national teams competing against each other, along with the more individual competitions. Okay, more in a minute. But first, let me say that Bombfell, which I mentioned at the top of the podcast, is an online personal styling service for men that helps find the right clothes for you. You can get $25 off your first purchase at bombfell.com slash fool. That's B-O-M-B-F-E-L-L dot com slash fool. Thanks to Bombfell for supporting this podcast today. You know, it's an online personal styling service, as I mentioned, for men. After completing a simple questionnaire, you're going to be matched one-on-one with a dedicated personal stylist who handpicks every piece. Clothing is shipped straight to your door. You pay for the clothes that you keep, you send back the rest at no charge. And I am a happy Bombfell customer myself. They sent me a handsome shirt and slacks. And uh, they even threw in a track jacket, which I wasn't really expecting, but was handsome. It was a dark olive green color. My wife said it 
looked good enough on me. So I figure my stylist did a decent job for me. So I recommend Bombfell. We have a special offer just for listeners of this show for $25 off your first purchase. You can go to bombfell.com slash fool. That's bombfell.com slash fool. Once again, $25 off your first purchase. Now we have to talk some about practice. There's practice, there's purposeful practice, there's deliberate practice. These three terms are even, while a lot of us may not have association with them, they're really technical terms and and they're very important to Dr. Erickson's work. Um, I guess glibly I asked earlier, does practice make perfect? Uh, One of our podcast personalities here at The Motley Fool, Matt Greer, said that he had a junior high band director who used to say, practice perfect. Makes perfect. Um, let me ask you, Dr. Erickson, could you lay out these three types of practice? Just to kind of take an example, if you have like a, a tennis player uh, who's playing doubles tennis, you know, you basically start up and then maybe after six months, a year, you know, you kind of are able to play here so you keep the ball uh, so you can actually have a game with your friends. Mm-hmm. Now, just engaging in that kind of playing, some people might refer to practice. And, and some people, when they're just doing their job, they would think of that as being practice. What we refer to, uh, to that is like naive practice. You're just kind of reacting to the situations you're in and doing basically your best. And so you're really not trying to change what you're doing. So, uh, I would argue that that basically what we call purposeful practice is that when you actually look at what you're doing, you're pinpointing now something that you want to change. And and this is now something that you would actually, you know, spend extra special time uh, engaging in. So if you want to practice your serving, you know, you could actually do that by yourself, you know, and do one serve after the other, and you can kind of see here where they're landing and and you you would try to now improve the power and the uh, control that you have over this serve. Now, we refer to that as purposeful practice because you have identified now something that you can change and you're now focusing in on training that would actually allow you to change and improve that particular aspect. One of the problems, I guess, is that, you know, if you're just trying to improve something like your serve, and it becomes even harder if you want to improve your backhand, say, when you're figuring out things that you can do by yourself to improve, that that's just purposeful practice. Now, when you actually seek out a teacher, and that teacher can actually take a look at your game and basically say, hmm, you would really be able to improve your game here if you worked on, say, your backhand volley or something. Mm Mm-hmm. And now the coach can basically help you get the fundamental strokes right when you're standing there by the net. And then basically you would then be forced to run up to the net perhaps and then finally integrating it in the game. And the argument is that with a coach, you will actually be able to improve your backhand so much more than if you were just playing the game and occasionally run into an opportunity for uh, a backhand volley that you may not be able to control. Mm. So, from naive practice, which was the phrase I should have led off with, naive practice to purposeful practice to deliberate practice. And do you use a term called homeostasis, which I think is one of the key 
um, concepts that I want my listeners to to hear about. Could you define homeostasis and its role within um, better and better practice? Right. And, and, and if we take something, and maybe the example here, running is a, is a good example. So if you just go out and run the same route at the same speed day after day... <laughs> Guilty as charged, although I wish I did do it day after day. I'd be a much better human being, but keep going. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the thing is that after a while, you will adapt to that. And if you see here how fast you can run races, uh, you're not going to see an improvement. So the argument is that if you want to change something, you need to do something that will get your body out of this comfort state of basically doing an activity that you're used to be doing. So you actually have to push it. And one of the more effective ways to improve your speed for running, say, 10Ks, is interval uh, running, where you actually are running as fast as you can for maybe 10, 15 seconds, and then you basically walk until you kind of recover, and then you push yourself again. And, and that kind of pushing will now push you outside this comfort zone. And the biochemicals that are generated will stimulate genes to start to be activated that will lead to more capillaries and all sorts of physiological adaptations in your body, which in turn will actually allow you to run faster. And so it is that process of getting outside of what I might call, and you call, quotes, good enough, uh, and, and pushing ourselves outside of that, if we want to get better at something. And I think it's worth putting in a quick note here for those lazy bums among us, and I include myself foremost, that homeostasis being good enough for a lot of areas of life is just fine. Exactly. And, and if you try to be world-class in any of a hundred different activities, I, I would be very surprised if you were able to get even close. <laughs> and actually, I, I want to mention that I first heard about your book from one of my listeners um, here at Rule Breaker Investing. It, it's a guy named Evan DeSilva, who was at that time a senior at the University of Michigan, and he mentioned this book, and I've read and enjoyed your book so much. And I, I did ask Evan to send me a question or two for the author, since I'm getting to talk to him right now. So, these next two questions are coming from Evan, and I'm dropping them in right now because it connects very much with something that you just said, in terms of trying to be really great at more than one thing. So, the question that Evan had was, first, Abraham Lincoln learned geometry, even though his profession was law, because he thought mastering a hard topic would help boost his intellectual abilities to deal with other problems that came up. So, is it possible, Dr. Erickson, that learning something in-depth that is unrelated to your career could actually make you better at the field that you want to master? I think that's a really interesting question and one that I guess I've been talking to a lot of people about. And it has to do with how do you actually learn to engage in what we call deliberate practice? Because that really requires you to set goals outside of what you're currently able to do and then actually focus and actually gradually stretch yourselves towards those goals. And I believe that learning how to understand something whether it's geometry or some other domain, if you approach that in that kind of systematic way where you're actually developing your understanding as opposed to, which I guess a lot of students do, they're trying to figure out the easiest way to get their homework done 
and, and basically are not really interested in fundamentally understanding what they're doing. And we believe that if we look at people who have engaged in music and been successful during childhood and adolescence or sports or any of these other domains, that they have now learned some more general aspect of learning hmm. that they then can apply to whatever professional interest or, or you know, professional domain that they eventually have selected now for their lifetime. Mm. So, and, and that kicks then into Evan's second question. I'm kind of paraphrasing here. It's sort of the Renaissance man question a little bit that we're talking about. So, he, he wanted me to ask you, how realistic is a character like, like Sherlock Holmes, who's mastered a number of intellectual disciplines, which he ties together with unparalleled logical skills while also being notably strong and skilled in jiu-jitsu, shooting, boxing, violin, and other physical activities. Did, did Conan Doyle have some unique insights into performance? Indeed, Holmes certainly doesn't try to balance his interests, but rather he works obsessively on whichever one interests him at the moment. I personally think that I don't know of anybody who reach international and world class that basically have a lot of different activities that they are trying to reach that extreme level. I think I know of some people who decide to be good at certain things, but one of the things that I've found that I've, when I explored more carefully these individuals is that they maybe pick two or three things that they are clearly better than most of their friends and then focus in on those three things. And they really don't do the other things or aren't willing to be part of activities that would reflect their ability. So it's almost like you get the impression here that they're great at everything because they're only restricting themselves to the kind of activities where they've really made that investment. Mm. But they wouldn't really be world-class, or at least that's not been my experience. <laughs> that that people become world class and really competitive domains at the same time. We can certainly think of Michael Jordan trying to take up baseball when he took that really interesting departure from the basketball court for a few years in his prime, um, as maybe one one such example. But I'm I'm wondering, Dr. Erickson, how has your study and your understanding of expertise and the book that you've written with Robert Poole? How has that changed you as a person? I, I think in some ways, some of these ideas kind of emerge from my research. And, and, and I've always tried to basically live by the insights that I have. And, and I think being able to structure your day where you really, in some ways, prioritize something, and in my case, writing scientific articles. So you really kind of protect that very best time that you have and maybe also realize that at least I uh, have never seen people being able to invest more than four or five hours a day when they're really in some ways trying to do something that is at the limits of their ability. And that basically then means that, uh, you know, some of the rest of the day you're going to be doing things where you're organized it in such a way that you really wouldn't be demanded here to, you know, be... Uh, exhibiting your peak performance. So basically organizing one's day so you get two or three hours, and especially if you're an academic like I am, you know, you need some energy for your teaching and 
for your other responsibilities once you stop writing and go into your office. And Dr. Erickson, I'm wondering if I'm a student at Florida State University, where you live and work, Tallahassee, I think, Tallahassee, Florida? Yeah, that's right. Um, do I have an opportunity to take you as a professor? Are you one of those that gives lectures? Talk a little bit about your life on campus and your thoughts about, about Florida State. Well, you know, uh, this year I'm on sabbatical leave, but typically I would be teaching an undergraduate class in cognitive psychology and then uh, a graduate seminar on expertise. And I think uh, we also have students working in my laboratory, and, and we've really tried now to provide them with the opportunity of learning a skill as part of their assignment here during the semester. Hmm. Sort of this idea is that if you're really going to understand here how one can improve in sort of different domains, taking a domain and then reading about what is actually known about effective training, and then I also tried to match them up with teachers, so basically they would have now for a short period of time that opportunity of really see here how they can improve, and then actually testing themselves to kind of describe how their perception of what they're doing is changing as a function of their improved performance. Mm. Makes a great deal of sense. Practicing, truly practicing what you preach in a sense by having kids do that. That sounds like, in your case, a deliberate practice. Is that fair? Well, you know, if you <laughs> find the right teacher, uh, then you would meet the requirements here for deliberate practice. <laughs> um, what are you reading right now? What I really enjoy is reading about research, and, and given that there's so much interesting stuff now happening in expert performance, hmm. if, if I have some free time, I'm actually going to be spending it reading about the newest research that has been published, uh, so I can kind of keep up with it. And also, I think what I tend to do is get opportunities to talk to experts, because I find that is a very interesting both getting their perceptions and also sometimes having arguments with experts about things that will help me focus our own research on, on some of these questions. Mm. You know, we are the motley fool, and our name comes from Shakespeare. The fools were the ones who fought conventional wisdom. That's how we've kind of framed it up. Uh, they were the only ones who could tell the king or queen the truth back in medieval courts without having their head lopped off. They mixed some humor in. I feel like I'm talking to somebody who is, this is a compliment for me, of course, a capital F fool, somebody who, uh, there are there is some amusement in your book, which I, which I enjoyed, but, but primarily, you're taking on a lot of subjects that people had set ideas about, and, and turns out they weren't right. And one of them, and by the way, if you want to just start railing against anything, I kind of enjoy that. If there's a conventional wisdom that really bothers you, either in your field or outside of your field, I'd be curious what you'd have to say. But at least one, maybe to get you started, is this idea that older people can't learn things. Yeah, there's a, this real confounding here between what people believe that they can do and what they're actually doing. So if you don't believe that you're going to be able to master a new language when you're older, you're not going to do that. And, and I think uh, what we're now seeing, and, and especially I'm getting emails and, and other kinds of contacts from older people who, after reading our book, are really reassessing here what it is that they 
should be able to do. And, mm. and I think that's so exciting <clears throat> to see demonstrations of people who actually th- thought that they couldn't do something and then maybe a year later can actually report back and say, gee, you know, working with a teacher. And I think it's really important here that you have a teacher that has experience of people of your age or with your background knowledge, because the path to successful performance is going to depend very much on the kind of background characteristics that you have. So you need a teacher who have had those kinds of experiences with their previous students. Mm. You know, the great line, and I can't remember whether you included it in your book or not. Maybe you know this one, maybe you don't. But Henry Ford, the American entrepreneur, I've used this one a number of times on Rule Breaker Investing. I love this line. Whether you think you can or whether you think you cannot, you're right. Well, that's certainly the case. Uh, I guess I would just constrain it here that just thinking that you can do something is not going to be enough. You really need to have somebody else at least in my mind, has demonstrated the path that they took to get to the point where you want to be. So so basically having that validation here that other people have been able to do it, and by actually studying them or getting the help from teachers who have helped other individuals reach that point, that's kind of the promise that I see that I'm trying to convince people that they should pay attention to. Okay, Dr. Erickson, before my next question, I want to thank Audible for supporting this podcast. Audible has an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original shows, news, comedy, and more. If you want to listen to it, Audible has it. Audible is offering a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial to Rule Breaker Investing listeners. Just go to audible.com fool, browse their unmatched selection of audio content, download a title for free, and start listening. It's that easy. And I've certainly enjoyed using Audible myself, having books read to me while I'm driving my roughly 35-minute commute back and forth to The Fool has been helpful. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial at audible.com fool. That's audible.com fool. I think one of the great points that you make that is going to be very resonant with a lot of our listeners and a lot of Motley Fool fans is, and you've used the word a number of times now, teaching, coaching, teaching, finding a good teacher. And I'm thinking, this is a little bit of a digression, humor me if you will, but I read a wonderful book in the last year or so called The Smartest Kids in the World. It's by Amanda Ripley. I'm not presuming you've necessarily heard of that or read that book. Had you? I I think I own the book, but I have not had a chance to read it yet. Uh, so it's uh, on on the sort of the stack of books that I like to read. Excellent. Well, I do recommend it to you, and you've read so much more than I, I I have that I very humbly nudge that one forward. But one of the things that Amanda Ripley does in her book is she profiles the approaches to education taken by different countries in the world. Uh, a lot of it based on the worldwide test, whose acronym I'm forgetting right now, and perhaps you know it, but it's the sort of like, hey, where does the U.S. rank in math worldwide? And anyway, what she does is she focuses on a few countries that are way top 10 and ahead of the U.S., and they're very different cultures. South Korea, I think, was number three. Finland was number one. 
and I think Poland was number eight. And she chose American exchange students. This is part of what makes the book compelling, because as Americans, we like to see through American eyes. So she sees, she takes us into those educational cultures through American eyes with exchange students in those three radically different environments. And I, by no means am I going to start summarizing any of them now, but I do want to say that what comes across clearly is the power and value of good teaching. And in Finland, which is number one um, worldwide for its educational system, I know you're from Sweden. Sweden, of course, also ranks very high. The Nordic countries always do well on these tests. But there is a tremendous amount of effort to train teachers. And it is, it is probably not the highest paying job in those countries, but it pays decently. But really, there's tremendous respect accorded to teaching and coaching. So, a little bit of a digression there, but I wonder if you have any reflections either about your native country of Sweden or what I just said about the smartest kids in the world. Well, you know, I I think uh, that general uh, research, I think, fits very nicely. And and I guess one of the little pieces that I've taken out of that work is when an American teacher asks a question, uh, he or she only waits for a few seconds before they give the answer, whereas in basically Japan, I think that was the research that was explicitly done with videotapes, they basically wait for the students to come up with answers, forcing them to actually you know, generate and think. And, and I think if there's one thing that cuts across all the different domains that I see is that focus on understanding what you're doing and actually very thoughtfully reflect, especially on what you just did, so you actually will be able to you know, identify things that you need to correct or, or improve or think about ideas about how you can do things differently. So basically that kind of understanding of the task that you're trying to improve upon, making that into a mental activity as opposed to something that where you're just accumulating more and more experience. Mm. I I think that's a very general theme that I see cutting across all these other domains where you see excellent performance. Well, you've been very generous with your time, Dr. Erickson. I I could certainly... I'm going to ask one or two more questions, but thank you very much for what has been very enlightening. and not that you care that much, but I bet we sold some books here this week because I just know that a lot of rule breaker investors are people who are wondering um, how can I get better. There's a lot of entrepreneurs who listen to this show, and these are often people who are into self improvement, and that's something that I think is powerful, and that I try to do the best I can as well. I wanted to ask you what what for you at this stage of your research and your understanding. What is your biggest unanswered question right now about expertise? One of the things that I'm really intrigued by is how would you be able to set up kind of opportunities for professionals to actually improve their performance? Uh, and, And we're looking, I've been talking to people in surgery. So, what are the methods that would actually help somebody who is an existing surgeon you know, do even better and in some ways produce even better patient outcomes. And I think the same thing goes for education. How would one be able to kind of help a larger percentage of children really engage in this kind of, you know, purposeful and deliberate practice where they are feeling like they're now understanding what they're doing? Because I think once you get to the point here where you understand 
basically the task and the knowledge that you're acquiring and seeing how you can actually use it in the real world, I think that gives so much satisfaction and also stimulates you to apply the same way of mastering other domains and and getting across here how one would be able to help children get started or even professionals get started on this path and then basically giving them support for how to keep basically improving. Mm. That kind of individualized learning uh, that is supported by available teachers that you may not need all the time, but if you know that they're available to you, I think that just helps people push the boundaries a little bit and, and, and really strive to become even more successful on what they're doing. Before we go, I have to ask you, are you a stock market investor? Uh, I, I'm basically a part of funds here that other people are doing uh, that. <laughs> and, uh, That's what most people do, and so it's an understandable answer. Have you ever bought an individual stock? I have never done that. Um, I, I, I think I've been talking to some really interesting people who are involved in investing, and and I think it's interesting that there are certain types of activities where I would believe that basically you would be more likely to be successful here and reliably reproducing successful performance than maybe in some of the markets where you know the market by itself, if it's in balance, it would be very hard to actually be able to do better than the average market itself. Hmm. Well, it's certainly a subject of ongoing interest uh, for everybody listening to you speak right now, but it's something that um, I'm sure, um, over the course of time, humans will get a better and better understanding of how to beat the market, or if it is indeed achievable, which I do think it is. And even under changing conditions, um, sometimes um, investors look better or worse because of a certain period or era. But I think one thing that I love about your work that I th- that helps all of us as investors is the recognition that we can deliberately think about what we're trying to do and what we would like to get better at. And that doesn't just go for picking stocks, that goes for really any aspect of our financial lives. And we can be choiceful about that. I'm never going to select taxes for me, personally. I'm never going to try to really get very good at taxes, but there are certainly other aspects of one's financial life and, of course, one's life outside of finance, but we tend to live inside that shell a little bit here on this podcast. I think the excitement that a lot of people feel when they're actually breaking through and and actually doing things that they never thought was possible, there's something very liberating and and exciting about that. Uh, and, And I think if more people could have that experience, I think it would be a benefit to all of us. Mm. That's a beautiful sentiment to end on, and I, I would normally end it right there, but I have to ask you the next book question because for fans of yours, and are you and Robert Poole, are you and Robert um, uh, collaborating on uh, some new book coming out in 2018? Uh, you know, uh, we're, we're talking about basically uh, maybe doing a book here on mental representations, uh, which which seems to be a theme that people felt that we could expand on. And and I think especially I'm interested in talking a little bit about the work that we've been doing, that I've been doing on thinking aloud, where where you actually get a better 
immediate idea what actually goes on in experts' heads and then basically using that information. We talk about hmm. you know some of the, the relevant information in the book, but actually getting into the issue here of what is it that people actually can give valid reports about uh, versus you know where we know that some people's self-knowledge is biased and basically not appropriate. But actually giving expression to what you're thinking about right now seems to be uh, something that offers some really unique insights into what distinguishes experts from uh, less accomplished individuals. Well, and I greatly enjoyed your section. It was a shorter section earlier on, on mental representations, um, thinking about a chess player who can play against 25 players, uh, and not only is he walking up and down competing against them, but he's not even, they're not even using looking at a board. He's just doing it in his head, and how does, how does humanity do that? But we'll save that question maybe for, I hope, a return visit, if you will grace us with that in a year or two, when you've got something more to say about that, we would enjoy learning. It was just a tremendous pleasure talking to you, and I'm really excited here to hear if you're taking up something and, and enjoying the journey here to becoming uh, expert or, or at least much better at something. Thank you very much, Dr. Anders Erickson, for joining us this week on Rule Breaker Investing. Very best wishes, sir. Thank you so much for uh, talking to me, and uh, I really enjoyed it. Well, we have to end it right there. I hope you enjoyed that. I think it was a treat. I hope you'll share it with friends and family. There's a lot to learn. Most of all, I hope you'll enjoy his book. Um, I haven't actually finished the book yet myself, because I did the interview one week ahead of time. I did this interview last week, because I'm at Motley Fool 1 Charleston this week, and so I didn't get a chance to really read all the book before I interviewed him. But I, I know you'll enjoy the book, and I'm sure some of you have already read this book. But it is a pretty remarkable work, and I hope that came through in our discussion. Okay, as you may know, my portfolio service, Motley Fool Supernova, it only accepts new members once or twice a year. And this week, in case you didn't know, this week just happens to be one of those times. So I encourage you to take a look. The URL is joinsupernova.fool.com. Many of our best members, many longtime Rule Breaker members or Stock Advisor members, eventually transition to becoming Supernova members. If that's you, don't delay. The doors close soon and it won't open again this year. So, for all the details again on a special offer that we've put together for you, just visit joinsupernova.fool.com. I leave you with my best wishes that you will fulfill your full human potential. Fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.